Welcome to the Health Enthusiasm Podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovation, and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet. I'm the author of the book called Health Enthusiasm and a global keynote speaker on the future of health and self-care business. Every month, I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. And today we have a full panel. Calling in from Milan, but actually living in Barcelona, is our digital health connector, Aline Noiset. Hola. Our American in Paris, also in Milan at Frontiers Health, and medical expert in digital health, Aditi Joshi. Hello, everybody. From London, customer experience and research expert, Krupa Sutar. Hi, everybody. And last but not least, from Ghent, Belgium, human experience expert, Mo Zouina. Hello there. Together, we want to amplify the health enthusiasm that we see in articles, new business ventures, or simply even in the world around us. Now, if you are new to the show, you might wonder what health enthusiasm is all about. Well, enthusiasm is the aspiration that we all have to be healthy and happy. And as a result of this, every company or organization is now more than ever focused on making their customers healthier and happier. So tell me, Krupa, what enthusiasm did you witness in the past month? So today I'm going to bring you two very different types of health enthusiasms. The first one is relating to women's health. You know, I like to talk about women's health. We are hoping in the UK a minister has called for menopause checks for all women to become compulsory and mandatory. So over the age of 45 is what they would like so that they can have um, any symptoms that they're getting can actually be recognized earlier and treatment can begin earlier so that they can continue on their daily lives. Now, they're saying that this is an urgent call to action. We have a number of menopause working groups. So this one has actually come from the all parliamentary group on menopause. And it's just it's the uh, the minister saying that this needs to be done as soon as possible because the current state is not good enough. That's the first one. And now moving to a very different type of of health enthusiasm. This one is actually quite close to my heart. I have a little dog, as um, Christoph and some of you know. This is around the bond between humans and dogs. And as you know, the British have a fascination with dogs and they're part of our daily lives. And this is a study that was conducted by Queen Mary's University in the UK. There's long been suggestions that dogs can recognise when their human owner is stressed or they're not feeling very well and therefore they can act as therapy dogs to comfort them. So there was a study by QM University and they took their owners and they took the dogs. And the owner had to complete a series of complicated maths tasks. So during the exercise, they were taking their owner's uh, blood pressure, heart rate. And as the tasks got more complicated, they would then be taking the measurements at that point. At the same time, what they were doing was also uh, training their dogs on, well, the the researchers were training the dogs on uh, scent and scent uh, detection. And what they actually found was that all the dogs, even if they didn't know the owner, would be able to recognise which dog, sorry, which owner, which owner uh, was the most stressed or was feeling stressed. So that just shows that they can then go off and comfort them. In the UK, we have a number of organisations which actually promote uh, therapy with dogs. We are seeing a number of organisations also promoting dogs going into work and being a place to actually help their employees if they're in a workplace. So for me, it's important and it relates back to mental health because it shows if you are if you're a dog lover, then you're basically going to enjoy you know, spending time with your dogs. But ultimately, it's got an impact on your mental health. We have a few high-profile celebrities uh, that have spoken about it. Ricky Gervais has made a documentary that you'll see on Afterlife, which is on Netflix. And James Middleton as well speaks about the impact that dogs have had on his mental health as well. So those are my two. And I think it leads quite nicely into uh, some topics that Merv has actually brought today as well, um, centred on mental health and I think World Mental Health Day. So I'll hand it over to him. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, that's true companionship, explained <laughs> and unraveled. Well, yes, mental health. As you might know, I've participated in some of the Healthusiasm podcasts. Well, I was not in Belgium, eh? not because I'm a big traveler per se, but because I've discovered the virtues of workations, that principle where work and leisure gets combined, and it helps me be more productive both in health and in business. 
And during my last vacation in Spain, I tried to catch up on some podcasts and books that I didn't get to listen to. And since World Mental Health Day was 10th of October, it was a good excuse for me to dive into that topic a bit further. And as you might have known, I was looking for topics that were resonating with my fascinations and that are on the crossroads of mental health and behavioral science, neuroscience, neuromarketing. That's my fascination. And boy, did I get inspired. The culprit was Mr. Rich Roll, who you probably already know. Rich used to be an unhealthy corporate lawyer, and at 40, he decided to change his life. He switched to a 100% plant-based diet, not there yet, personally. Lost 50 pounds, not there yet, personally, either. And started exploring human potential across a spectrum of disciplines, ultra-endurance, wellness, nutrition, mindfulness, and spirituality. Now, Rich is now 54, looking great, getting there. <laughs> And, and shares what he has learned in talks, books, and on his podcast. And he does a podcast every week that on average lasts two hours. Now, I've been following Rich for a while now, but one of his recent guests on the podcast was Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. I'm so happy I was able to pronounce that. World-renowned clinician, she's published a lot of papers, a lot of studies, and she's also a government advisor and author of two important books. In 2016, she published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, which was highlighted in the New York Times as one of the five books to read. And she also appeared, maybe you know it, in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, where she had an unvarnished look at the impact of social media on our lives. Now, her latest book is what really fascinated me. It's called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And um, it was also an instant New York uh, Times bestseller. And it explores how to moderate pulsive overconsumption in a dopamine overloaded world. Now, my fascination for this podcast was that during that podcast, Rich Roll and Dr. Anna Lemke address addiction, not just substance addiction, because that's our, our regular a default perception of, of, of addiction, but also addiction in the broader sense. They explain that addiction is basically something that is not good for you, but that you keep doing. And I think if we do some introspection, we will all find these things. So they kind of state that everyone is addicted to something and it further confirmed, and that was my takeaway. Uh, I, I had a hunch, but it further confirmed that, that our biology has not kept up with progress and how the world evolved from one of scarcity to one of overabundance. And as we are exposed to a dopamine overloaded environment, we almost do not stand a chance of not developing an addiction. And it helped me better understand why mental health has become such an issue. I was always asking myself, you know, why is mental health such an issue today? What has evolved? And basically the explanation there was that our craving for dopamine and for pleasure and subsequently the avoidance of pain is the main driving force behind worsening mental health, which in itself, we all know, is not a given. That has always been the fact that we've been looking for, for, for uh, pleasure and, and happiness. But what Dr. Lemke explained really clear is that today the quantity, the quantity, the potency, the novelty and the convenience of these dopamine triggers is unprecedented. She is really able to translate all these complex neuroscience research into easy to understand metaphors and how finding contentment and connectedness means keeping our dopamine in check and the subse subsequent exposure to addiction in check. So basically, I'm just plugging Rich Roll. I'm plugging Dr. Anna Lemke. Check it out. It's worthwhile your time. And uh, that's my enthusiasm for this month. I'm pretty inspiring. Uh, thank you for that. And indeed, I guess we are rushed. Uh, we are uh, addicted to dopamine. And I think it's uh, it's everywhere. And definitely with the, um, the mental health world day, I guess it was called the 10th of October. There were a lot of initiatives that went into that direction. And one that I saw that was really inspiring, I think was, um, and it goes a bit in the same direction, uh, Mo, is uh, from ASICS, where they showed pictures of people before and after exercising. And actually, they were the same pictures, of course. And what they said is that we are so much focused on trying to get that dopamine, trying to look better, trying to have that rush. Um, well, actually, exercising is, is, is also just about feeling better. Uh, and I really liked um, 
I really like that example. By the way, um, I don't know if you know this, Mo, but um, I think ever since 2018 um, and the World Happiness Report, the actual drive to become healthier and happier, the excessive drive to become healthier and happier is one of the main reasons of being unhappy. And so even so, this, this drive to, to, to do more, to work more on your health, I call it healthy mania in the book, is one of the things that, that really makes people unhappy. And it goes into the same uh, direction. That's a very good point. By the way, just a little note, do you know why Essex is called Essex? It's anima sana in corpore sana. Ah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So it's an acronym. So they perfectly match uh, their, their ambition. Yeah, and they, they're more and more they're working on mental health um, as, a, as a positioning as a, for, for their brand. And I really like it. By the way, um, we're so much busy with, with, with all our devices. And definitely in Asia, we see that this even more than in, in, in Europe, that AXA has also in the, in the mental health, they, they brought out a campaign which is called, I'll have to check my notes here. It's called Make Time for Me Time. Just to normalize the importance of taking time away from your devices, away from having to do things with other people and really try to include self-care into um, your whole lifestyle and, and management. Aditi, what uh, health enthusiasm did you uh, see this um, past month? Well, this is a good segue. And, you know, Mo, we're talking about the increased issues with mental health. And really, the pandemic really changed that, right? Because when you're talking about trying to avoid pain and increase pleasure, if we're all isolating, we're sitting at home, we can't connect. We don't have the ability to do that. And we're having to face all the things that we don't want to. And we're not allowed to have distractions. Really, that was... A, so that actually made it much worse. And so I was interested this month, the story by the WHO that launched an AI-powered digital health worker. Her name is Florence. And uh, she has a, a complete avatar. You can speak to her. And she speaks seven languages. And she can share a number of health topics. She was launched at the World Innovation Summit for Health. And so the goal here is that anyone can speak to her and so that she can give you t tips on how to distress, wellness, exercise, nutrition. She can give you advice on your mental health. She can help you quit smoking. A lot of these things are a lot of preventive and wellness care. One of the other things that they try to do is help fight misinformation. I really like this because when we talk about mental health or specifically, you know, the wellness and preventive care, of course, is helpful. But when we talk about mental health, it's one of the areas that are really stigmatized. And we, when we talk about stigma, there's two types, right? The one that's internal, the one that we feel ourselves, and then the external. The external has always existed, right? We don't treat mental health the same way as we do other types of diseases. And that is changing slowly as there's a lot more information about it, a lot more people open about their mental health issues. And so that makes it much easier to talk about, but it's still there. And the internal one is really also something that you have to get over yourself, thinking about, okay, I, I have mental health issues. We all have to work on our mental health. And because of that, I really like this type of intervention because it takes away that stigma because you can do it anywhere at any time. The AI is not going to necessarily judge you. It's going to look at you without any feeling of, oh, I'm speaking to another human. And so you're not going to feel that kind of feeling of uh, embarrassment or shame, whatever it is that goes along with you and your thoughts on mental health. And then the more you do it, the less you're going to feel that type of stigma, right? The more we talk about things and feels more comfortable, we get over our stigma. We're able to have maybe help ourselves and we're able to, in the future, maybe help other people talk about it. And so I really thought about this when we're talking about mental health and mental health, mental health day as a really great initiative to help with both of those things. And so that's been my health enthusiasm this month. Interesting. And um, if you remember all, I mean, the very first episode we talked about digital humans, where in these types of examples are perfectly possible and where in the future, potentially even a digital human can function as a healthcare provider. Why not? Um, or at least help people on the other side of the screen. How are you doing? What's, uh, what's your um, health enthusiasm? So my health enthusiasm is a bit different from yours. It's a bit more futuristic it's in the field of oncology, but very promising. So I read that a group of researchers from universities of Stanford, uh, USC, Georgia Tech, and University of Tokyo have developed a G2Hub wearable that can track a tumor size. It's a battery power uh, wearable. It's attached to the, to the skin 
it's uh, re reusable and it actually it can measure the tumor size continuously and in real time. And I think that's really amazing because if you think of it today, when you do like your chemo treatment, it will take weeks to know if the treatment is working. But with that wearable, in just a few hours, they can know if it's efficient or no. So in the field of uh, personalized medicine, precision medicine, this is great advancement. So I'm very excited about that for the future. Yeah, lovely. Definitely if you have this um, immediate help right away. My health enthusiasm is, um, is also, I mean, not exactly in the same era, but uh, it goes about immediate help as well. Did you know that actually seven out of 10 cardiac arrests happen in the presence of a bystander? Question to you guys is how many of the people that uh, actually are near somebody's having uh, somebody who's having a cardiac arrest, how many of the people are actually providing first aid according to you? Mo, you did the um, this this type of question last time. I ask you first, then not many, I think not many. Anybody got a hunch? I agree. It's not going to be a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's about twenty percent actually, mm -hmm. and the reason is. Most of the times it, it is because people, you know, don't really know what to do. They're kind of afraid of it. And there was a, a recent um, initiative by the Red Cross together with Snap, um, you know, the company behind Snapchat. And they made a Snapchat lens that explains CPR. So it's an augmented reality that shows to people how to restart a heart in an emergency, basically. Um, so you open up the, the, the lens in Snapchat and you can see actually a life-sized injured figure being helped by somebody else and who is explaining you how to do it on a real person. And I think it's considered the fact that so many people aren't helped by, you know, by the people that are nearby them. I think this is a, a great health enthusiasm, again, by a company that typically has less to do with health or healthcare. I just want to say, though, that the other reason that people don't help is because they think somebody else is going to do it. So that's the first thing also. So it's not even necessarily that they don't want yeah. to assume someone else is. And so getting over that, I mean, this will help for sure, knowing what you're going to do. But getting over that is more of an internal, make sure that you know that this is a human behavior have to be over to help somebody. That's a very good point, Aditi. And the person that is struck by a heart attack has more chance being helped if there are less people around than more people around, because there's a human behavioral principle, which is called diluted responsibility. So the more people are around, the more people think somebody else will do it. So you're better off having your heart attack with a few people around than lots of people. <laughs> well, let's call that a health enthusiasm world then. Thank you all for these health enthusiasms. There are so many positive changes that are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. And I really enjoy watching these changes unfold. I even analyze them and try to understand the broader impact of these changes. I even write a newsletter about it called It's a Health Enthusiasm World. If you're interested, go and discover them on healththusiasm.com. Now, every month during the Health Enthusiasm podcasts, I'll recap one particular newsletter for the panel to debate. And this week's newsletter is Financial Wellness 2.0. Let's get into it. We don't easily talk about money. It's uh, always been that way, and it's still today a very sensitive topic, in part because money is the source of inequality and between many people, between sexes, between races, between all ages. Money is actually considered to be one of the most significant stresses in our society. And definitely, if you look at what's happening now, the recent economic recession, um, the surging gas prices, um, it's even more so a source of stress. And now if you look around, if you look on the internet, it's not difficult to find articles on how people have more financial stress today than a couple of years ago or even the last year. Now, if I tell you all that financial stress has an, uh, an impact on physical health, for example, blood pressure, respiratory symptoms, you know, um, higher tension, maybe even physical or mental problems, as we talked about earlier, you might not be surprised. What's even more surprising, perhaps, is that people that have things like anxiety or depression, they are three times more likely to be in debt, according to the UK's Money and Mental Health Institute, that is. Now, there is this health enthusiasm trend we always talk about. We know that people are more than ever focused on becoming healthier and happier in their lives. And of course, that goes way beyond managing disease. It goes way beyond feeling good. It goes way beyond looking good, even. It goes way beyond managing what you eat or how much you work out. 
we are conscious more than ever about the different things, all the different things in life that impact our health and happiness, meaning also our finances. And that's why I personally believe that financial wellness will radically become more important and even radically change, evolve in the coming months and years. Now, before I get into that, I want to make something clear. Financial wellness is not about how much money you possess. It's also not about whether you can fully meet current or future financial obligations. So what is it then? For years, financial wellness was more of an HR human resource buzzword. It referred to the financial benefits that you get from your employer, thinking about insurance, life insurance, disability benefits, bonus optimization, whatever. But financial wellness, in my opinion, will grow beyond those buzzwords, beyond this definition. And again, this is, in my opinion, driven by the overall health enthusiasm trend. Because again, more people are conscious about their health and happiness. They want to do about uh, something about it. Um, they want to be as healthy and as happy as possible. And they understand that they need to be emotionally, mentally, physically, but also financially well. And this financially well, this consciousness around it is more present than ever before. But again, it does not mean having more money. It means having a better relationship with money. It means having maybe just enough money to be doing the things that you want to do or having enough money because you do the things that you love to do. It means having some freedom, some autonomy, not just because you have the money, but because you're good with the money that you have. And so in that evolution, we start seeing how people will approach financial management in basically similar ways as they do with other wellness practices. Meaning it's a long-term goal, but it requires a daily routine. And so in that way, financial wellness can actively become a process where you make choices and towards a more healthier and happier life. And so it may sound a little bit weird linking you know, this, this wellness practice to managing uh, your finances. But then again, if we think about it, if you want to marry or if you want to buy a house, if you want to retire, you already do some financial planning. You already do things on a monthly basis to get there. Well, in a way, financial wellness is the same, but on a daily basis. It's a similar approach. And it's just to make sure that your wellness, your financial wellness is managed on a day-to-day basis. Small, small, very, very small habits, actually, on a daily basis to reach your larger goals. Now, this also means that companies have a big opportunity here. Obviously, from an HR point, you need to move away from just insurance and bonus optimization, but you can also help them with financial habits, financial education, financial motivation, financial perception, all of those things. Uh, but also other companies can do it for their customers. Literally every single other company, and maybe even healthcare providers, they can think about how they can help their customers with their financial wellness. How can they take away financial stress that impacts people's health and happiness so very hard? And if they are able to do so, their customers will be super excited, super grateful, and it will create a better connection with their customers. So that is how I see financial wellness evolve in the coming years. From an HR buzzword, basically, to perhaps another very important pillar of what we often call holistic health. And it can be put alongside nutrition, exercise, sleep, and mental health. This is what Financial Wellness 2.0 will be, in my opinion. So maybe I'll go to Mo. Tell me, what's your thoughts on this newsletter? I think it's, it's a revelation for me. Um, it's kind of a highlighting a new aspect. But it's still another thing we need to get better at. It's still in the doing level, in the level that we need to do. It's doing every day and things like that. But I think the undercurrent of that wanting to get good at financial wellness is more at, at the being level, the fear of missing out. It's more about sustainability and consumerism, the fact that our identity is linked to being able to do things, to being able to buy things, to enable. So I like it, but I think... You know, it's still another thing we need to get good at. And, and um, it's a lot. Eh? It's health, nutrition, uh, finance and things like that. So it kind of gets an undertone of also being performance, you know, to having performance in that. I'm not a bit worried, but I'm fascinated by all these trying to do rather than trying to be. And be is at ease, content. I think we should work on the undercurrent that, that is giving that stress on that competence rather than just helping people to get better at something. I think we need to help people 
get better at being rather than doing. Yeah, I think it's a very valid point. And it, I mean, it doesn't exclude the, f- exclude the fact that maybe financial wellness could be just about that. Just be happy with what you have and live differently instead of, you know, trying to do more than you can actually pull off or, or try to find that job that pays more because you want to have that status in life. So it's, it's it, in a way, it could be exactly that, right? So that would be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Krupa, I see you nodding. Tell me. I think it just reminded me of that study that's a well-known study, which I think was conducted in the US, which looked at various levels of income. They measured happiness. And at first, the more you earned, the higher your happiness. Uh, but actually, there came a point when it wasn't linked to uh, how much you actually earn in the end, because the happiness levels, whether you're on a higher threshold or a lower income level, were the same. So there was it when, as you were talking about it, it just made me go back to that, which I thought was interesting. For me, though, this I have been following this trend for a little while now, and there's a company here in the UK, Zafit, led by Anna Freeman, which is really uh, leading the way in, in financial wellness. But for me, I think it all goes back down to education. We grew up um, in a different era. So this is us as a panel. Maybe our parents budgeted through actual, you know, they they actually used budgeting. They had physical money, which they could then easily see coming in and out of their accounts. And they knew how much they had on a daily basis. We're now obviously on a wireless tap kind of culture, which is you see even down to the board game of Monopoly. It's no longer physical money. It's tapping And for me, it makes me think about, well, what's the education going for children? And what is that? What's that level of education? Because to them, if they're just tapping, what's the concept of money? And therefore, as they grow older, what concept will they have and what understanding? And therefore, how will they be able to budget effectively? Which is where I think the the apps such as Avfit come in. There's also a number of leading uh, challenger banks that have emerged in the UK. So you've got the, your, your bigger banks, obviously, HSBC, Stanham there. But then you've also got, say, Monzo, which allows you to almost every month as your money comes in, you can physically put it into different pockets and different accounts so that you're saving for your holiday or your presents for whoever it is. And I think that's a really good way. And, and it gets people who are using that to start thinking a little bit more ahead of the time rather than at the time of actual spending and therefore can lead to a positive impact on financial wellness. So I think it's really important. We have help here in the UK as well through large organisations for their employees and it's known as the EAP programme, the Employee Assistance Programme, where if you are an employee, you can call your EAP helpline and they can help you with financial wellness issues. But I think it's only going to become more and more important. I, I like this article, Christoph. Thank you. And indeed, I mean, the EAP programs, they are slowly moving there. They're not there yet, I guess, because they're still focused on other stuff. But uh, it's, it's one of the things that actually can, uh, can make a, a difference. Well, you were talking about kids and the way that they go about money. I think if you look at studies, what you see is that millennials and even the generation younger, they, they tend to say that they realize that they won't have as much money as their parents, which was the first generation to actually say that. Previous generations were very much focused on welfare. I think the new generations are more focused on well-being. And that is uh, quite a bit of a change to me. Alin, what's your thought on this? That's exactly what I was about to say. So I could relate to financial wellness from my point of view, like being a freelancer even more, you know, when um, when I notice a caution, I'm better. But uh, what I've witnessed with the younger gen- generation, as you were mentioning, is that maybe they don't care so much about uh the money, like taking example of one young person who could choose between two jobs, the, the salary was the same. She chose the one that was better for her. Like she could stay at home. She could work with a company that was in the UK being based in Spain. And um, so I think they're choosing different things. They're choosing more quality of life experiences, what the company can provide. Like this week I was with a friend who was a startup and he has to grow the company. It will hire young people. I said, no, but you know, I have to, to have an office like in the city center to have like ping pong table to offer them like um, ticket for the, the restaurant, things like that. So they don't really care about money or having shares in the company. It's more about experiences. So I feel, I don't know, things are different. As you were saying from our generation than their, their generation. The new generations. Yeah. 
Yeah, I fully agree. What's your thought on this, Aditi? You agree? I do. There is a lot of stress around money. So I also agree with uh, Mo. It's really looking at what are your thoughts about money and why do you feel that way? There's a lot that goes into that, right? Whether it's how you grew up, what you saw growing up, whether you were stressed as a child around money, if you grew up in a place like that. And then as you get older, it comes along with you, right? And there's a lot of, and I've seen this specifically, especially in medicine, I see this a lot of trying to keep up with others. And so this ends up happening, like Alina's alluding to, you know, wanting things that you want things or collect things instead of experiences. And so I welcome that change. But in terms of health, I see this really as a stressor for everybody. It feels like um, something that you need to survive. And so trying to figure out how you make enough for your life and so you're not stressed out is really important. But I think it's also really difficult. It is. It is. And I think that's exactly why it can be so important indeed, because we want to remove the stresses in our life, right? So, and money is always going to be there. We'll always need money. The question is, how can you go about them? And then again, Mo, as you were saying as well, it's about being Okay, so thank you for that discussion. Now, let's move to the next segment of the Healthy Jasmine podcast. Is it something, nothing, or everything? Every month, one of the panelists brings an idea, an innovation, or an evolution forward that sparked their health enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinion about it. Do they find it something, nothing, or everything? Aditi, what sparked your health enthusiasm this month? All right. So this month, I read a paper. It's a very academic paper, I will admit. But it was a review looking at the idea of digital twins in cardiovascular health or heart disease. So I just want to level set and think about what we think about digital twins in the first place. So a digital twin is creating a virtual representation of something so that you can try to intervene, get real-time updates on a number of data variables so that it can inform what you do in the future. So if you think about somebody looking at a car, you can make a representation of the car and try to fix things up and see how will it move forward, for example. So now we're talking about doing digital twins for us as individuals. So we would create a virtual representation of us as a patient. And we can do a lot of this. And the whole idea came about because of the increase in precision and personalized medicine, because it allows for better personalized care. Everything is looking at the person specifically and thinking, okay, how is this intervention going to help? How will this medication intervene and to help that patient? get better. So if you have a digital twin, so this example of cardiovascular disease, you can try something out and then determine is that what that disease progression or treatment might do to that real-time person. So you can do that before so that you have a better idea of what might work better for them. So you use these virtual models to investigate the changes and on the systems to see how they will work. So I will say that, you know, when I was reading this at first, is, my first question is, how is this going to happen? You know, the human body is not like other systems. And medicine in general is not, at least with the knowledge we have now and the way that we educate, you learn really early on that it's not a direct science, right? It's an applied science. We even call that because the science we have has to be personalized. It doesn't work the same. So interventions don't work the same in every person. And it's also difficult to predict what's going to happen. Yes, we have data, we do research, but it's not always a predictable field, right? So not saying that, we do have better access to data and information. And so we're trying to take some of this unpredictability out of medicine. We're not there yet, but there's a lot of work that's being done in this health technology to try to alleviate this problem. And so I can see how this is happening for this virtual twin and digital twin. So in general, this paper was a review of the literature that's out there right now. And we won't have to go into that. I don't think it's relevant. But really what they're saying, there's mostly a lot of proof of concepts out there. But what they did find that I think is interesting and worth thinking about is where there's the big barriers in translation, meaning what's going on in the research and what's going on with like the other parts of the world that we don't see happening or bridging between medicine and this technology. So one of them is just the hazards of the big data. I mean, how do you generalize data across time and geography? 
the risks that we do, uh, the risk is that once we pull this data in from everywhere, we may actually increase disparities as opposed to it being really helpful, just like we do with any type of data gathering. The second is just the amount of computational power that would be needed. We don't really have that right now. Um, it's a lot of energy that's required. And so where would we store it? How would you make it interoperable for all of the medical records and the technology we use now? That also is something that is a big barrier. And then, of course, you're sharing your data and IP. You know, we talk about national international regulations of how we're going to share data with each other with and how to make it safe. Because if you're going to use big data and really create a database that's going to be relevant and helpful for a digital twin, you really need to share it internationally. You're not going to necessarily get enough of it to make, at least in a research form, in form, format, to be able to make a big enough decision or make it better for the individual. Then, you know, the, the cybersecurity, the privacy data and, th- data and how do you hold it again is that where is it going to be hosted? And so then those four, I think, are important. But I think the last three are, are really what I would be interested to hear everybody's opinion. So the fifth is like the professional barriers. So as I said, I was a little skeptical about how this is going to be possible. You know, we're all open to learning about it. And I am open to seeing where this technology can go. But how do we improve that? How do we actually make sure that this works? And if I give something to a virtual twin and then I give it to the real person, what if there's a negative outcome that wasn't predicted? I mean, that would feel absolutely horrible. And I know that I would feel that way. And then two, is that how you are always going to... um, There is also the discussion about, okay, does that take away some of that interaction between a patient and a physician that is still important to a lot of patients, actually, and physicians? Uh, the second thing I wanted to really hone in on is the ethical barriers of this, right? So you create a virtual twin. So now you have one out in the w- world. And so now the real person dies, right? What do we do with that virtual twin? Do they cont- continue out? And do they continue out in the world forever? Do we put them in research? I don't know. I will say that in general. So when we get cadavers in medical school, there are people who donated their bodies to science. And so we do. That's how we, that's how we uh, learn it, it right now. And, you know, this is uh, something that we still do, but, you know, we still have a ceremony because this was a real person. But what does that mean for a virtual twin? And the last thing I think is interesting is, oh, not the last, excuse me. One thing also about the ethical barrier is that now we've created an entire database of these people and we learn all this personalized data. What will somebody who has nefarious thoughts about different genders, races, ethnicities they can take this and do something obviously dangerous with it. And history is full of examples of this, right? But now we're going to have the data for it. And then the last is we're going to be the governance regulatory. How do you make sure that those things don't happen? <laughs> like law is always much slower than how the technology works. And so it takes laws a lot longer to catch up. What laws are going to be needed? How do we make that happen? So this is why I feel like this is going to be somewhat of a nightmare to control. Well, I find this interesting. And again, I would love to be able to have a positive effect having a virtual twin, trying something out, making sure that I'm not going to hurt somebody and that I have a better idea of what I'm doing. This also makes it, there's a lot of questions that I have. So I'm going to stop there and ask everybody what they think about this and whether it's something, nothing or everything. In order to be able to gauge whether it's something, everything or nothing, you need to be able to grasp that matter really well and really know what what it entails. I totally agree with you. There are ethical barriers. There's liability who's responsible. But I'm also thinking of participation, right? I think you need a critical mask for that data set to work. And participation works at two levels. From the clinician, am I being challenged by this thing? What's my work? Where am I going to fit in? You know, am I going to be obsolete? Do I trust it? Do I believe in that system? So I, and, and secondly, you know, I, I still want to have that social interaction with my patient. So I think participation from one side, from the clinician, are we going to have that critical mass for it to work? And secondly, are we going to have the participation from the patient you know, to have that critical mass to work? I think that's the main barrier. I think you know, apart from technology is really participation because I think you need a critical mass for this to, be, to really, really, really work. I'm going to keep it short. I don't know enough to know whether or not it's something, everything or nothing, but I think that participation might be something that will be overlooked. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I appreciate that. I think it's always good to say, hey, I don't know yet. <laughs> I want more information. I was, I, I read this whole article as well in detail. I went right into it and I 
thought it could be great, right? Because it is focused on cardio, say, for example, for cardiovascular diseases in the UK, it's a quarter of deaths, all deaths in the UK. And it's especially as high, especially higher for ethnic minorities. Actually, my mum passed away of a heart attack. So for me, this really hit home. And I thought, well, this would be something that could have really helped. But it goes down to, for me, it goes down to participation. And I, I think, Mo, you're right. Are we going to get enough people participating? Are we going to get people from the different ethnicities that you need? So if it's all going to be one segment of or one socioeconomic class, then really does, does the data going in and then the data coming out, is it actually representative of the sample that actually really needs it? So it made me start thinking about that aspect. And then how do you actually reach the people who really, really need it? So are there masses of the population? And we know through COVID-19, we know that there were masses of the population that actually the messaging just wasn't getting through to. And, and, and I wonder the same this thing here. But actually, are there people who should qualify, but actually their doctors don't think that they do qualify for a digital twin, but actually their family history may say something different. So what's the flip side of it? So that was the health equity piece. And I think, the, and then on top of that, for me, the biggest part was this whole piece on data sharing and, you know, moving across boundaries in different countries. And, and it's a minefield. And if it works, it would be great. But I, I think, yes, there's a proof of concept, but there's a long way to go here. So I'm with Mo here. I can't decide if it's something, nothing or everything. I think it's somewhere between nothing to something because I think it's got the potential and I would like to see it on further towards something. But I just can't get there yet because I think there's a long way to go. Yeah, I, and you're right. And I'm sorry to hear about your mom. You're right. It is the third biggest killer in the in the world, heart disease. So which is why it's a huge amount of data. But you're, and you know, it actually, for example, in South Asians, it's actually much more prevalent. So like you're saying, if you don't get that data from those populations, you're not going to be able to affect those. And so that health equity piece makes a big difference in how it's going to work and how relevant it'll be. So that's true. All right. I know, Aline, wanted to say something. Yes. So I'm actually, I'm a big fan of digital twin. I really believe in their, in their potential for medicine, but I also agree with you. I think we're not there yet. It is happening in other industry, but in medicine, I think we're still far from it. Mainly from my point of view, the, the data, yes, now we can collect a lot of data, but maybe the quality is not here yet to be able to, uh, to have a, a quality digital twin. And yeah, your point was very interesting of what if I give a drug to the digital twin, it works, and then the side effect on the on the real person, I, I, I didn't anticipate, no? But for me, to a point when you were talking about participation and getting people on board, especially healthcare professionals, from my point of view, digital twin is actually offering a better service to the patient. It's improving the, the quality relationship because I can offer yeah, additional support to the patient. It's a way to do clinical trials, like computational clinical trials, make it faster and give alternatives to, to patients. So I see it more as a, as a positive, improving the relationship instead of um, making it less, uh, less, less human. I'm excited about it, but for me, it's like it's something because we adore, we're not there yet. I like that idea of using it in research. And I think there's a lot of potential there, like you said. It also has a lot of potential for education. So whether or not at the moment you can use it on a real patient or feel comfortable doing that, I don't think I would. I would be able to say, okay, we can at least try this out and trial this out. So there's, there's, it's almost like thinking about using virtual reality for education. It's, it's somewhere different that you can try something out. All right, last but not least, Christoph, what do you think? I think it's everything. Like, literally, I really think it, but it because it's happening already. And obviously, and the challenges and the, the ultimate digital twin may not be fully there yet, but there's so much happening in that space that it's, to me, it's definitely everything. I mean, just quickly, before I get into some, some nitty gritty insights, there's Siemens Health Engineers that is working on a digital twin of the heart 
to actually improve drug treatments related to heart diseases. The, you have the so systems that already launched in 2014, something which is they called Living Heart Project. It was a crowdsource uh, thing to actually be able to build the virtual twin of a human heart. And multiple pharmaceutical researchers already are using digital twins to explore the heart risks of various drugs. And then there's the FDA who's pumping a lot of money to collaborate with companies like Simmons, actually, to see how digital twins can help. So there's a lot going on. It may sound new, Actually, the term is, 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 has only been coined in 2010 by some guy named John Vickers from NASA, actually, to, in, in a report that he was, you know, explaining how the agency will evolve, what the roadmap was. And a lot has to do with, you know, building the digital twins of how will we apply things in space and all of that. And so that was the first time that he um, brought it out. And another interesting fact, I just I just found these facts and I really wanted to share it with you. But did you know that in October 2020, the European Union launched something which is called Destination Earth? Have you heard of it? It's now called Destiny, the Destiny and it's actually, it has a purpose to build a digital twin of the whole planet. And so that they can, you know, really start to forecast floods, droughts, fires, but even how much food that we need and all of that. So really as a um, sustainability uh, focus. But I have to say, I'll come back to the, to the matter now. In healthcare, we know it exists in manufacturing. We know it exists in, in airports. We know it existed in, in ports and cities. We're even building the world now. BMW is using it. I mean, it, it's everywhere, digital twins. It, it is already happening in China today, actually for a couple of years. In 2016, there was the CEO of um, GE Healthcare Digital, Bill Ruh, I think you need to say it. He said that we will all have a digital twin by birth. And that digital twin will take all the data of all the sensors and all of the behavioral data along with us to predict the things for us like diseases, but also to make sure that these diseases never can happen, which sounds amazing, right? When he said it, it, was, it sounded like futuristic, but there's one company in China, which is called iCarbonX, I don't know if you heard of it, who actually is already building what they call a digital life platform, which is gathering, integrating, aggregating multi-omics technologies, such as genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, microbiome data, phenotypical data. And they either are gathering uh, behavioral data, medical imaging results, immune function data, clinical data, any biomarker that you can have, medical procedures, everything is in there. And the purpose of this digital life platform is to help people take decisions by presenting the consequences of that decision. They show the consequences in a digital twin. It's still an app today. It's not like you, it's not like a, a physical body, but it's actually an, an app where you can see the consequences of some of your decisions. And it also helps clinicians to, for example, profile um, the risk for cancer. Because we have a couple of markers perhaps for cancer, but if you add in all the other data, you have a bit more insights into, you know, distinguishing truly meaningful markers from the false signals. And it's, it's, the, it's the only tool out there that actually can help because of that digital twin type of concept that actually can help to, to make such an accurate diagnosis about um, cancer. So I think digital twin sounds futuristic. And there's a lot of, I mean, if we, if we look at the ideal state of a digital twin, Maybe we're not there yet, but there's so much happening already right now that comes so close to what a digital twin is supposed to be and where we can actually help either a patient or a clinician that is very interesting and important. All right. So we, you, there you have it. it. Sounds though you're talking about preventive and wellness care, which is different than acute care that and screening and being able to do that. And that's where we are. Sure. I can see that. But let's see how it works for going forward. Again, you need a lot of the data. There are a lot of ethical issues that go on and it is going to be very uncomfortable for doctors to use that as for sure for acute care, I'll tell you that right now, or even any interventions until we have a lot more of that data. Agree. And thank you everybody for this um, discussion. It is clearly something maybe soon one day. Anyways, time for something else. In this enthusiasm world, we see the boundaries of industries blurring between the worlds of healthcare wellness and consumer business. You can see how consumer businesses are slowly moving into the wellness and healthcare space while the healthcare industry is paying more attention to what is happening outside of their industry. 
This brings the following question. What behavior, innovation, or trend from one industry can be worthwhile for another industry? In other words, what should we bring inside out or outside in? Tell me, Krupa, what's the idea, the innovation or the evolution that you would consider bringing inside out or outside in? So mine is a much lighter topic I'm going to talk about. And actually, it's all centered on one of my favorite pop bands, which is Coldplay. So as you may know, they are touring at the moment. It's called Musical Spheres. Basically, what they have done is they're trying to create the most sustainable tour. Now, pop bands are known to be tra traditionally touring is known to be unsustainable it's not sustainable at all it's really bad over 405,000 uh, tons of greenhouse gas emissions are emitted every year and that's just in the UK alone so it got me thinking when I went to their concert this year I started looking on to see what exactly are they doing and what I noticed was first of all they uh, well they had free water for everyone they were encouraging people to bring their own uh, recyclable bottles with them They had bikes, which were powering the tour, which was really good. So as the concert was going on, people were actually cycling to actually power the stage. They were investing in sustainable modes of transport. Their tour bus was actually powered with biofuel as well. And so they were trying to do lots of, obviously, um, profit making for them, but still they're also trying to do lots of things to help the environment. It made me think, actually, here... What is the power now that, say, bands or influential figures outside of government, obviously, that have, what power do they have to help change behaviour? Behaviour change is incredibly hard to do. Can pop bands or influential figures have a leading role to play in, first of all, sustainability, which we know they can, but secondly, helping us change our behaviour and our health to lead to better health outcomes, essentially. I found that very interesting, and I thought it'd be good to bring today for discussion. I'm going to ask for Aileen's uh, point, on, point of view on this. So Krupa, I found that article fa fascinating. I think it's amazing. It's really great to see what's happening there. I love the bike or the, the place where you can jump, make some lights produce some uh, some sustainable energy that that's fascinating and i i thought it was also very um very good for this inside actual healthcare like they said that if healthcare was a country it would be the fifth worst polluter in the world so we also have big issues with their sustainability with hospitals and all what's around there and um yeah maybe there's something to do there Maybe if we think about like TikTok, there's more and more healthcare professionals or figures who are present on, on TikTok influencing the, the youngsters. And maybe that's a way for them to make some campaigns on TikTok around that. Then when you come back to, to healthcare, to, to hospitals, I think many of the things that Coldplay are doing could actually be applied to healthcare, to the hospitals, like all the fleet for ambulances to be using summer renewable uh, energy or fuel inside the hospital as well. There's a lot of waste, maybe putting some, some bulbs to um, some LED bulbs. And I read also when I was reading that article that in, in the UK, the NHS, they've been putting in place a net zero hospital program. And that's the idea by 2026 that all the hospital will be like net zero to really work on sustainability. So I think that's really great news and that's something yeah, we, we all need to, to work on. Thank you, Eileen. Uh, hand it over to Christoph. I think it's interesting to have such a role models. And if you look at, again, well-being and wellness, I mean, there's a ton of stars, a ton of supermodels that are moving into that space. I think Gwyneth Paltrow was one of the first ones, but there's like every single supermodel or actor or actress now is moving into that space to to actually influence it. It's one of the one of the clear manifestations, I would say, of the health enthusiasm trend. We need to do the same thing with health in general, but which I mean is that or with sustainability. Because the WHO came out, I think very recently, that saying that climate change is actually the single biggest health threat to humanity. 
for multiple reasons. One is because climate change will create more diseases. But on the other hand, the fact that there is climate change has an impact on the way that we can deliver healthcare, or it has even an impact on the conditions that we that we live in. So there is a direct link between sustainability and health. So I think we need to find the right role models to bring that forward. Because if we if we can link health a lot more to sustainability, to the fact that actually climate change and bad ecology might lead to severely damaged health for all of us, um, I always say there's no healthy people on a sick planet, then we can actually save two things at once. One, the planet and maybe our own health. And so we really need role models for that. The question is who will be doing it, uh, of course. So I think that is my take on it, but it's very inspiring indeed. Well, what's your turn on this? Well, I'd like to have as much impact in the shortest time possible. And I'm not sure if human intervention is going to pull that off. I'm, I'm kind of a realist. If we look at how consumerism has driven the activity of massive container ships, I think we need to set the record straight. One massive container ship equals 50 million cars. One ship. There are 90,000 cargo ships out there, so they pollute 2,000 times more than all the cars and all the societies together. So if we really want to make a dent into climate change, we have to go where it scales. And I, I applaud the initiative of having a kind of coherent approach, but I think there's so much to do with cargo ships first than how it would scale with individual behavior. And not only these cargo ships, these cargo ships also use the most dirty fuel there is around that, exp you know, that, that kind of pollutes with uh, sulfur oxide. So I think there's uh, the recent boom in global trade of manufactured good also resulted in a new breed of supersized container ships. So I love these initiatives. I think they're very nice for the, for behavior and things like that. But I think if we want change fast, that scaled, we need to go towards consumerism, towards more local production, so that we rely less on these incredible tanker ships, which are the greatest polluters out there around. So it's one of also the least regulated parts of our global transportation system. It's waste oil that's left over after crude oil refining process. It's the same as just you know pouring out asphalt. It's so thick that when it's cold, it can be walked upon. It's the cheapest and most polluting fuel available. And... Um, so it's an astonishing 7.29 million bar barrels that are put out there each day. 7.29 million barrels each day. So I think I would like it to go fast where it scales most. And I think we need to put our attention in that. But that doesn't mean that I don't applaud these init initiatives of changing behaviors of the individual. So did we just talk about containers <laughs> and container ships? We did talk about container ships because... I applaud the initiative, but if you really want a healthy world, you know, to people to be healthier in a healthier planet, these are conversations that are not happening for the moment. And I think if we really want to do, you know, whatever it takes. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Aditi, you have the final word before we close up. Yeah, everyone brought up some really good points. I also agree with Mo that if we're talking about what is really affecting the climate, we really have to remember that it's it's very actually very little about the individual. It's really more corporate. I'm not saying that. Obviously, when you have some of these more public figures do something and bring some attention to it, it hopefully can help in the future to affect maybe some of the more corporations to do that, especially as there's more discussion about it. I will tell you, I'm a little bit pessimistic about that, but I do think that we all feel like we need to do something. We all know that climate change is going to affect our planet. It already is, right? Uh, it's going to affect our health tremendously. It's going to affect uh, geography, ec the economy, all of these things. And so I also understand feeling like you want to do something rather than nothing. And I do appreciate that we can all try to help in any way that we can. But again, I also don't think it's going to help overall, but I applaud everybody trying to do what they can. I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's the corporates that do it. But it's the every single individual that decides with his own wallet, wallet from what corporate he buys, he or she buys. And so I think there is there lies the power. If people want to buy from somebody who's more sustainable, and then the information needs to be transparent, of course, that might change everything. So it's, it definitely works on two sides, isn't it, Mo? 
I totally agree with that. As recession is getting harder and, and there's more pressure on the budget and financial wellness, I think climate change and health are going to be deprioritized in the focus of a lot of individuals from a consumer point of view, not necessarily from a brand or a things point of view. But we see that as as economical pressure is, is getting higher, I think people will reshift their priorities, maybe for a little while, but it will happen. That's my, true. My, uh, but I, I do think that we have to remember, too, that some of these very large corporations are more affordable. Like we can't assume that everybody can make those decisions. And I think this is where it becomes very difficult. And that's why having people who can actually influence them to do something, such as governments or the large corporations from themselves, is really where it's going to help. Yeah, my wallet and a few walls are not going to do it, really. Yeah, maybe for a little while. We'll keep it at that. Thank you for this discussion. I'd like to wrap up the Health Enthusiasm podcast for this month. Thank you for listening. If you like this show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And by the way, you can also find us on the Shift Forward Health channel. It's a podcast channel of thought leaders who are actively designing and building the health and self-care business of tomorrow. For now, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for their insights and health enthusiasm. Thank you, Aditi Joshi, Aline Noizet, Krupa Suter, and Mo Zuina. My name is Christophe Choquet. We are the Health Enthusiasm panel, and would love to see you again next month for some more Health Enthusiasm. Ciao. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again. Thank you.